We know what's on your mind right now when it comes to food and restaurants. It's on our minds, too. We will get to the impact of coronavirus on all things food later on in this show. But let's start with some good news. A Kansas City pastry chef was just nominated for a James Beard Award. She's a semifinalist in the category of Outstanding Pastry Chef, and we want to recognize that. I'm Gina Kaufman. This is the Friday Food Show on KCUR's Central Standard. Megan Geralt of Blue Stem and Rye. Congratulations and hello. Hi. Thank you so much. That is quite an honor. Yeah. <laughs> Some pastry chefs elevate the art of dessert by making things that no regular person could even begin to imagine making at home. You're famous for pie, straight up pie. You know what I'm saying? How do you make a name for yourself doing something that's not showy or foo-foo? Well, I think, you know, whenever you can get uh, guests to sit down and relax and trust the restaurant to feed them with things that they really, really love. Um, nostalgia has always been my go-to. Um, I want people to feel like they're in their grandmother's home or their own house or um, just eating things that they've grown up loving, which is, for me, what's always been pie. Your pie really has gotten major attention, and especially the banana cream pie. Outside of rye, I would say that banana cream is not a crowd pleaser. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Everybody has their favorites. Um, banana cream is my favorite pie. Um, it's the one pie that when we opened, we knew for sure would never leave the menu. Lemon meringue became another one as well. That one I intended to kind of shift around and, and take off uh, when it wasn't winter months. Uh, but people kind of threw their hands up and said, no, don't take this. So we kept that one in as well. But yeah, banana cream is, is my favorite pie. <laughs> Have you been surprised by the focus on your pie among the desserts you make? Um, yes, I would say, you know, we, we opened rye um, with pie being the front runner along with fried chicken. Those were the two things that we wanted to feature. Um, and mission accomplished. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a focus. And I think anytime a restaurant opens with dessert as part of the language and the vocabulary of, of everything they do, um, there's no way you can turn away from that. Instead of an afterthought. Yeah. Which in most restaurants and for most diners it is, but, um, I am the one that would eat dessert first, um, put maple syrup on anything, you know, whatever. <laughs> so your crust uses lard, which has gone out of fashion in some circles. Mm -hmm. Why lard? What does it do for the crust? Sure. Um, I tested a lot of different pie recipes at home. Um, I didn't have like a family recipe, but um, I really love the texture that lard gives, but lard doesn't give much color. So our ratio is 50% butter and 50% lard. Um, I love the flavor of butter. It gives more color, but lard adds that added texture. Shortening, I understand it, but it kind of freaks me out. So I think because lard is more of a natural product, um, I steer towards that more than shortening. Tell me more about these uh, testing experiments <laughs> at home. Well, before we opened dry, I knew I had to have a, a set, you know, very stable pie crust recipe that I actually loved because I've had a lot of pie where you'll see the people that just eat the filling <laughs> and they leave the crust. Um, and for me, sometimes I would do that um, if I'm at a place that I don't love their crust. You want clean plates. Yeah, I want clean plates. So to get something that was really flavorful, uh, the texture was right, the color caramelized correctly. Um, we just did a lot of different ratios. I did an all lard, all butter, mix of things, um, you know, a little bit of sugar, no sugar, egg wash, you know, and it was in the winter and it was cold and I remember it was snowing and uh, a friend of mine came over and we just, who loves to bake, and we just baked a lot of different crusts and tried a lot of different, <laughs> we were eating a lot of dough. <laughs> 
I lo- I've noticed so far in this conversation that you loving these desserts mm-hmm. is an important part of this process for you. And I of really course. appreciate that. That's the opposite of like focus grouping your yeah. pie. Well, they say never trust a skinny chef, but <laughs> no, no. If size matters, as long as the chef is eating what they're making, that's always a good sign. When did you get into food? Can you trace that back? Yeah, I mean, I've been baking with my mom since I can remember. I mean, she would always like in the middle of a Friday night for no reason, like, let's bake brownies. I'm like, okay. (laughs) So uh, we've always baked together. She was always responsible for desserts for like family Thanksgiving or or family Christmas. Uh, And her mother would come for the holidays. They lived in Ohio and she had those old, you know, holiday tins that there was like dozens of them in her trunk uh, that she would bring with her. So there were always cookies and things around that we were baking. Um, and I've always loved restaurants. Um, my uncle was a restaurant manager um, in Texas when I visited him when I was little. Um, and I just knew that once I was around restaurants, it was a place I always wanted to be. I like to be on my feet, you know, and to move around. Um, and I love entertaining. So I was fortunate that I was able to start working very, very young in a restaurant kitchen. And yeah, I tell left. me about that. Tell me about the restaurant jobs you had before you were like at the level you are now? Oh, I started when I was 15. Um, I hated school. So any any way I could get out of school early was great. So um, I did an independent study uh, program in high school. um, And I did baking for my independent study there. I had to create it with the with the home ec teacher because it didn't exist. Um, And then I was able to uh, work. So I would leave at like an hour before school was done. And I would go to a restaurant in town. Um, I worked. uh, I did prep. I did garmage. I worked the girls believe it or not, for a short time um, in high school. And, you um, say believe it or not. I mean, you're, you're just like very distinctly n- not the main course gal. Yeah, I just, you know, and it was helpful to work in a restaurant in high school and to work all stations because I knew that baking truly was my passion. You know, I like the feeling of butter and chocolate on my hands. I don't like icing fish down and butchering meat so much. It doesn't do anything for me. So I knew that uh, baking was what I wanted to do. And then from there, I went to culinary school right out of high school um, at the CIA Culinary Institute in New York. Um, did my internship in New York City with Richard Leach, who was a James Beard award-winning pastry chef there. Um, and after graduation, I went home to Chicago, where I'm from, um, and I worked with Gail Gand, who's also a James Beard winner. So there's a trend there. Yeah, <laughs> this is with, very much with not winners the, for a while. Yeah, it's not just. This is very not the just stumbled into it story. Yeah, no, it was very uh, methodical as to where I worked. And, you know, my husband and I were just laughing, you know, back in the day before Instagram and Facebook, none of that existed. So if you really wanted to see a restaurant, experience a restaurant, we had something called a Zagat Guide, of all things, which um, is just a list of great restaurants. And they were, you know, uh, listed by star ratings. And that's how we found places. The top rated places were the places that I wanted to work. My husband did the same thing. Um, and that's how you discovered restaurants. And you had to actually go there unless you had a cookbook. If they you know, published a cookbook, you could see it. But um, you had to go to the restaurants and eat the food and see. I always laugh when I see people on Facebook going, I'm going to this restaurant. What should I have? It's like, just go there. <laughs> Look at the menu and decide for yourself and really experience it. You know, go in blind because that's what dining is so fun. And some of the, you know, social media is taken away from that, unfortunately. The other thing I'm thinking about is when you talk about a cookbook, even that is really not a substitute to see seeing someone absolutely. cook because there are subtleties to how they do oh, what absolutely. they're doing that even they might not be conscious of. 
Yeah, there's sometimes recipes and books and they don't work, um, but the chef can make them work because they <laughs> have a secret method or something they're doing that's not listed in the recipe. I know that courtship is super personal, but you did start Blue Stem and Rye with your husband, mm-hmm. Colby Geralt. Yeah. You're a husband and wife team and a very successful one at that. I am curious about the love story behind that success. What are you willing to tell me? I will not pry beyond that. <laughs> uh, well, we met in Chicago. Um you know, we were always a team. We were dating and we were in love. And uh, he wasn't allowed to date me because he wasn't a manager. <laughs> so it was a little bit of a scandal. Um, and he was actually transferred. That's why we left Chicago. Um, they tried to take us, a, you know, make us apart. And um, so he was transferred to a restaurant within their company in Las Vegas. And I followed. And um, I got a different job in Las Vegas. I worked at the Mandalay Bay Hotel. And then the rest is history. We we went on to Los Angeles. We lived in Santa Monica. And I worked for the Getty Center Museum as the pastry chef there. And, um, you know, we just – we've always done this together, everything we've done together. Um, you know, we have – opposite ends of the kitchen, which helps sometimes, <laughs> you know. Yeah, you each have your domain. We do. And he does things he wants to do and I don't want to do and vice versa. And that, that helps not only the kitchen side, but the business end of what we do, because there's so many things we deal with that are just opposites of each other. I mean, truly, that sounds like a good household operation style, too. Everyone yeah. has their division of labor. People mm-hmm. know what their deal is. Yeah. And Bluesome's, you know, it's a tiny, tiny restaurant. Um those were harder days in the very beginning because it was just him and I. We didn't have a general manager. We didn't have any help, just, you know, a couple servers and a couple of people in the kitchen and a dishwasher. Um, and with only 14 tables, you know, we're literally – everyone is so close together working. Um, but, yeah, Bluestem was the start of everything we've done before. What's the role of food in your household? Um, Colby does all the cooking, which is great. So highly recommend marrying a chef. <laughs> um, I've heard that chefs don't love cooking when they come home. I think that that's kind of crazy. Um, depends on the person, I suppose. But my husband loves to cook. I think he actually sometimes prefers to cook at home. He loves feeding the kiddos. We have a, a son and a daughter. Um, and, uh, you know, some of his best meals are cooked at home. Um, I bake at home from time to time. Um, food is a big part of our is big part of our culture within our family. Our kids don't get special meals. They eat everything. If they don't love it, that's fine. But um, they have to taste everything at least once. And you don't like make mac and cheese when they don't like what's for dinner? No, we don't do that. We do make mac and cheese, sometimes real, sometimes the old craft box if, you know, it's a busy day and that's what lunch is and that's what they want. But, you know, I mean, kids are kids. You know, they're not going to be eating the most luxurious things all the time. But, you know, if they'll eat Brussels sprouts, that's amazing. Our kids love shrimp. They love vegetables. You know, I mean, I'm probably more picky than my children are. And my husband rolls his eyes. I'm like, I don't want eggplant now. I hate eggplant. (laughs) I said before that your restaurants are successful. But on a personal level, how do you just define success? What makes you feel proud? Or what would like, what would the ultimate sort of sense of I've done what I've been trying to do. What would that look like to you? I think when I look back, especially Bluestem is turning 16. Our 16th anniversary is actually on Sunday. We're closed on Sundays, but we're celebrating our anniversary this weekend, tonight and tomorrow with bubbles. At the restaurant. Yeah, with bubbles and uh, all kinds of goodies, uh, Bluestem. And when I look at 16 years of Bluestem, you know, what really defines success is just the years and years and years of um, of guests that have dined with us. Um 
and the relationships we've we've built and grown with people in town and, and people that don't live here that still come and see us. Um, I also look at like our staff. We've had quite a few staff members meet at our restaurant and get married and have kiddos. And for us to have just created an environment, whether it's a restaurant or a business or any place um, that people want to be together in, it to me defines success. And that's what restaurants and, and food are all about. It's just bringing everyone and anyone around a table and making relationships, you know, falling in love or all the things that, you know, people want in life. And I think restaurants have a unique ability to provide that for people. So what's the timeline for this James Beard process? When do you hear more news? I understand that the COVID-19 situation has pushed that back a bit. Yeah. Um, so the semifinalists were just announced earlier this month. Uh, they list the final five nominees. I think it's March 25th, if I'm correct. It's later in this month. So then you'll know the top five. And then um, if the world was operating normally, there would be awards on May 3rd. Third, I think May third or May fourth, um, in Chicago, and that's when you go, and it's you know red carpet, tuxedos, black tie affair, and uh, you go and you find out if you win. Um, my husband won the James Beard Award for Best Chef Midwest many years ago. At this point, um, and this is my fourth semifinalist nod. So we've been around it quite a few times. Um, you know, to be a semifinalist or to be a finalist. Um, both are a huge honor. You know, the, the Pastry Chef nomination is a national level, whereas the Chef Awards are regional. So it's a smaller group of people within the regional awards. But to be one of the top 25 pastry chefs in the country is pretty cool. We'll take it. And uh, it's in Kansas City. <laughs> Megan Geralt's James Beard semifinalist in the Outstanding Pastry Chef category. Thank you so much. Thank you. Megan is the pastry chef and owner at Blue Stem and Rye. I'm Gina Kaufman. When KCUR's Central Standard returns, the food critics will be here with restaurant news, including but not limited to the impact of coronavirus on restaurants in town. Don't go away. I'm Gina Kaufman. This is KCUR's Central Standard, and we're talking restaurant news with the food critics. Today's critics are Danielle Lehman, Jenny Vergara, Carlton Logan, and Liz Cook. Hi, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Big, big crowd today, and <laughs> we're going to make this happen. So the big news right now for every industry, but maybe especially the restaurant industry, is coronavirus. We'll get to that in a minute. I want to address some other big news as well, and um, I could see us not being able to get back on track once we go there. Winstead's just filed for bankruptcy. Jenny, tell us what we need to know about that. Um, yeah, so uh, the guy that owns Winstead's basically uh, had... Um uh, what was the other place on the plaza that just closed? Uh, Piotz, Fred Piotz. So uh, basically with the closing of Fred Piotz and with Winstead's, um, he's just basically kind of, it's a little bit of financial protection, I believe, just like most um, bankruptcies are. The good news is, is that supposedly the plaza location is the one location that they're going to keep open, which is kind of their iconic location. So for those of you still needing your Winstead fix, I believe we are still going to live to see Winstead survive on the plaza. But I mean, this is just another in a series of bankruptcies and cor course corrections that we're seeing in the market right now with in terms of the restaurant industry. Liz, we just spoke with Megan Geralt about her James Beard nomination, but Kansas City actually has six James Beard semifinalists. 
That's right. Yeah. So we have four that are uh, repeats, or I guess five that are repeats. In addition to Megan, we have uh, Michael Corvino of Corvino Supper Club and Tasting Room. And he was also named a finalist last year. So he's again been named a semifinalist. And then also that are re-nominated, we have Linda Doerr of the Restaurant at 1900 and uh, Nicholas Gellner of the Antler Room. And then out in Lawrence, we have Taylor Petrain of 1900 Barker for Outstanding Baker. Uh, new this year on the list is Von Good of Fox and Pearl. So we're all kind of monitoring that pretty closely. Of course, this is a bit of a, we're looking forward to coronavirus maybe a little bit, but the James Beard Awards have been postponed, they announced. So we're yeah. going to have to wait until the summer to figure out whether our nominees have been <laughs> awarded. Yeah. Carlton, I want to get some good news from you and some bad news from you. And we're going to start with the good Strang Hall. So um, Strang Hall is the latest in... Um, some of the food halls that we've seen opening up in the area. And it seems like to me, uh, as we see these food halls open, um, each one seems to get better and better and better. And um, Strang Hall opened in December, and it just seems like it keeps evolving. And, you know, um, I saw some of the original menus, and every time I look up, there's a new menu item, and there's a new menu item. And people are just flocking there like, you know, it's the greatest thing on earth. And so this is part of that ongoing food food hall trend. Yes, yes. And uh, next uh, in line, I think, is Tom Colicchio's um, Food Emporium. Actually, String up. Hall is going to be opening a second location downtown if the deal goes through. Mm. So the owner of String Hall is right now negotiating at Lightwell, the building at 11th. I think it's 11th and Main or 11th and Grand um, to basically do another kind of 13,000 square foot food hall, which would have five chefs. Mm. Um, and it's posed... Mm end of this year early next year kind of mm. if it goes through but i've been talking to local chefs who have been interviewing for positions so hmm. carlton this now we're moving on to the bad news and column on your list mm-hmm. uh, the closing of mcgonagall's i learned about that while driving and seeing a different sign on that building and i actually <laughs> cried out alone in my car i was like no <laughs> you and everyone else <laughs> yes it's it's big news um so yes mcgonagall's meat market uh, well known in the area for a uh, great selection of, of meats uh, basically a grocery store but they've also um, always served great barbecue and traditionally every um, spring they have a uh, trailer out in front. So when the sale happened, there was, yes, a collective groan throughout the city, but a, uh, a chain out of, um, I believe it's Nebraska or Iowa, um, Fairway, and that's spelled F-A-R-E, way. I noticed. Yes. Um, has uh, <laughs> purchased, <laughs> not, not F-A-I-R, <laughs> uh, has purchased um, the store, and they have a very good reputation, so um, they'll continue that. And then um, supposedly what we hear is that the um, barbecue trailer will continue, and also their Ribs for Kids fundraiser will continue. All right. Well. I've got to jump in here because we're going to have to put the openings and closings on hold for one moment to talk about coronavirus and its impact. One of our regular critics who had not been planning to come in today has actually been digging into this topic full steam ahead for the last week or so, contacting lots of folks for info. Pete Doolin is on the line to share what he's been hearing. Hi, Pete. Hi, good morning. What are people telling you about how they plan to conduct business right now, the measures they're taking for the health of their patrons and staff, etc.? Sure. Um, so I've been in touch with probably a dozen or so um, restaurants while working on an article for Beast Magazine. Um, uh, probably the, the first thing that I'll, I'll say um, to emphasize as a preamble is 
um, I, I want to remind people that um, the professionals in the food and service industry are already subject to um, health inspections and regulations to ensure food safety and just general safety. Um, so the cleaning measures that a lot of businesses are putting into place are on top of what they're already doing when things were, were normal. Okay, so what so, what are you hearing about different steps uh, that, are, that are additional? Yeah. Um, so, for example, like uh, Beth Barton at Secatash, um, they've enhanced their cleaning protocols, um, wiping down um, all high-touch surfaces, um, like door handles, tables, chair backs, even menus. Um, they're removing items that would normally be on the table, um, like napkin holders or, uh, you know, uh, bottles, and they're replacing those things. Um, so, like, for sugar and cream, they've moved to single-serve um, items there, so there's less community handling of, of those things. Um, with napkins, instead of having um, a container, like a napkin holder, they have switched to packaging silverware and napkins in uh, like sealed plastic bags. Like so lots of little bags. little details. What if yeah. what is like your big takeaway from these conversations that you really want people out there to know that that they may not just guess on their own? Because there are some things that we might just guess on our own, but I'm guessing that there are also things where you're like, whoa, huh? Well, I. I there's naturally a lot of con concern among the, the public, and I, I think the main takeaway that restaurants are trying to put out is um, they're being very proactive about um, cleaning and sanitization, um, but they also don't want to have people um, not go out to eat, not support local businesses, um, and I, I think that's a, a key message and, and takeaway. Okay. Um, and there's a lot of outreach um, in that respect. Well, thank you so much, Pete, for calling in. Sure, absolutely. And that article will be in Feast Magazine. So now for, for the in-studio critics, uh, some restaurants in other cities have already closed, not temporarily, but permanently, and that that's being sort of linked to this concern about coronavirus. Liz, what are your thoughts about how Kansas City should, what Kansas City should anticipate? Yeah, so I mean, I wish I could paint a really rosy picture, but I think this is going to be a very difficult time. Um, you know, when people, when we do rebound, when people do get better and we start going out again, it, it's not as though we're going to start going out twice as often as we did before to make up for that lost revenue. So this is a tricky time. We're seeing in Seattle that restaurants are closing, some temporarily, some permanently. And I think there's maybe something important to highlight here, which is, you know, traditionally when businesses close or restaurants close, people like to talk about it through the lens of competition, right? Like they weren't good enough, you know, they weren't productive enough, they lacked business savvy. And I think we're seeing that that logic entirely breaks down in the absence of unfettered consumer choice because we're not willing to go out to even our favorite restaurants if we're afraid to leave our homes. So I think that's leaving a lot of us kind of looking around saying like, well, the engines of capitalism are grinding to a halt. What else you got? <laughs> you know, I mean, I did. I, I was in a restaurant last night, and I don't know if this is just coincidence about where I was and the time that I was there because it was still quite early. But I, there was no one else there. I mean, my family walked in to an 
empty restaurant. Is that typical right now or was that just a coincidence? So it kind of depends. I mean, I think we're going to see a lot of places hurting because of the cancellation of major events, like the St. Patrick's Parade, for example, brings a lot of people into Westport restaurants. The you know March Madness tournament brings a lot of people into Power and Light. So I think on top of kind of people maybe being a little more reserved about their traditional kind of eating out, they're also going to lose a lot of revenue from these big events. So that's going to be a huge challenge. Yeah, Carlton, you are hearing from some restaurant folks who'd been preparing for March Madness-sized crowds in power and light, and now they're worried for their livelihoods just a very short time later. Right. Um, I did hear recently about someone who, uh, a server who was really looking forward to March. You know, it's March Madness, and there are other events that go on downtown, and she was really looking forward to making money. And now that March Madness is um, canceled and uh, other events might be canceled, how do these folks pay their bills? How do they... uh, you know, take care of themselves if the money's not there. Danielle, your podcast, Open Belly, is all about food created by people from immigrant communities in Kansas City. And you've talked to restaurant owners who serve Asian food who have encountered a certain amount of racism from patrons. Can you talk about that? Yeah, unfortunately, I've heard from a couple of restaurants, uh, Asian restaurants now, that they've experienced some racism um, where, you know, customers have come in and said, you know, Am I going to catch coronavirus if I eat this food? And, um, you know, that's adding another level of anxiety. And, and it's just it's not funny. It's completely offensive. So on top of already being worried about your business's survival and your employees' well-being, um, now you've got someone coming in and spouting these racist things. So I think that's something else to keep in mind um, that a lot of these restaurant owners are having to go through right now. Liz, you're telling us about a novel approach from a fine dining establishment in Seattle, and I'm really interested in that as possibly like the kind of innovation that we might see for restaurant owners trying to kind of walk this line. Yeah, so a lot of people trying to weather the storm right now are thinking like, well, this old business model isn't working, so we're going to have to get creative. So there is this fine dining restaurant in Seattle called Canlis. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's very like well-known in the city as one of the higher-end fine dining establishments. It's kind of an institution. And they pivoted recently to something entirely different where they're now offering drive-through and delivery services of a lot more fast casual items. So they're doing like drive-through burger services now, um, which a lot more people are willing to kind of come through you know, bring a sandwich to your car, it feels a little bit less stressful. (laughs) Well, so what can, have you heard about any kind of different ways of thinking as you've talked to people in Kansas City's restaurant scene, different ways of imagining how people might continue to serve customers when customers aren't flocking to gathering spaces? Well, people are starting to emphasize carry out a lot. So this is something that we heard from, I think, um, Jax, for example, said that they'll do carry out and they'll bring it right to your car. You don't even have to go into the restaurant if you want. So that might be a way that people can still support the restaurants they love without worrying as much about putting themselves or the immunocompromised people in their lives at risk. Um, how is the demand for delivery changing? I think this is going to be really, really interesting to see how delivery changes. I do want to say one quick thing. Um, When you are thinking about going out during this time of coronavirus, 
if there was ever a time to support your local restaurant, the people that you really love, the independently owned places, now is the time. And that includes who you order from through your delivery services. But even more so, if you want to put more money in the pockets of the restaurants, just call and take a carryout order to go. They will take it. A lot of them are setting up systems where they'll bring it right to your car. Um, even if you just stop in for a real quick minute to pick up your food, it's going to be better quality, um, certainly provide more profit for them in their pockets, which is what we're all trying to do in support right now. Some other techniques that people are talking about is paying in cash. Obviously, when you use a credit card in a restaurant, there's a 3% fee that the restaurant gets hit with. Um, so if you can pay with cash, you should pay with cash to allow the restaurants to have as much of that profit as they can. And a final strategy I've heard is buying gift cards now. And that does a couple of things. It puts money instantly in the pockets of the restaurateurs right now. So if you're not planning to eat out right now, go online, buy their um, gift cards, call them up, buy gift cards, give them as presents, save them for later in the year and use them, give them out as gifts, whatever you plan to do with them. The gift card you buy today for your favorite restaurant might just be the thing that holds them over. But this is still very fresh and new. We just got the mandate yesterday from Quentin Lucas. So I still think restaurateurs are trying to get their head around a number one this weekend is going to be the indicator of the impact of this, I think, for sure. And I think after we come out of this weekend, we're going to see a lot more restaurateurs getting a lot more creative about um, the types of services they're providing, the types of things they plan to do to beat this beyond just cleaning tables and moving things off hard surfaces. I think there's going to be real shifts in business models. And I think you're going to see the first innovations coming out of fine dining. Why is that? Because they have more to lose. I mean, fine dining is a uh, a financial uh, investment when you go out to eat, right? You're you're basically spending a lot more money to do that. And so they have a lot more to lose. If you're going to go out to eat during times like this, and a lot of the things that you can get delivered typically tend to be kind of more fast casual items anyway. So they're going to have to try to, like this restaurant in Seattle, figure out a way that they can... Um, participate in this without necessarily inviting people into the restaurants to stay for hours and hours and hours, which is what you typically do during a fine dining experience. Yeah, and that elevated ambiance is part of what you're paying for. So the idea of carry out would be a little bit hard, maybe a harder sell. Well, and there's a lot of things that really shouldn't be carried out. I mean, there's a reason why pizza and Asian food tends to be kind of the number one with a bullet food that is delivered. It's because it holds up well. It travels well. And so like tartare, maybe not. Yeah. Oh, God, who's ordering tartare in a box? I mean, you know, anything with a bun, anything that's fried with anything crispy, you know, that has been, has some texture to it, all of that is going to sog out in a box no matter how well it's packaged. Um, ramen noodles will absorb every bit of broth in a bowl if the noodles are left unattended. So I think you have to be mindful if you're going to order things to take out, and you absolutely should. I mean, again, if you are healthy and you can go out to eat, you should. The restaurants are doing everything in their power. They're all, it's already a business that um, survives because of its cleanliness practices. So um, that really shouldn't be a concern here. I know a lot of restaurants are starting to kind of even spread tables out a little further, give people a little more breathing room between tables during this time. So if you can't eat out, you should. If you're going to do um, carry out food, then obviously do it at a local restaurant and give those keep that money here local. Danielle, um, what are some other just responsible and public health conscious ways to support Kansas City restaurants right now? So I think one thing that a lot of restaurant owners that I've spoken with are struggling with right now is, you know, how do we do what's best for the community? Um, how do we, you know, keep our business afloat? How do we care for our employees all at the same time? And I think one thing that people don't think about is that the people that will be the most impacted by this loss in business are people who 
are food insecure. And there is a very large percentage of restaurant workers who are food insecure. And so, you know, it's it would be horrible if somebody came to a restaurant and contracted coronavirus. But at the same time, it's horrible if the dishwasher can't pay his rent and is evicted because his, you know, his hours are cut. So I think another way that we could support uh, these folks and other folks in our community that are truly going to be impacted by this are by supporting local, you know, like harvesters organization, um, local pantries and, and people that are supporting those communities. I'm also wondering, you know, Liz, you have been asking the question, as have we, not just what we can do for restaurants, but what restaurants can and should do for their employees. Industry standard when it comes to pay structure doesn't include sick leave. Like, this is a tricky time for restaurants on many levels. Right, absolutely. So most restaurants don't offer paid sick leave to their employees. And even those that do, that doesn't necessarily compensate for the loss of tips that you would make um, during the day. So I know a lot of restaurant employees right now, especially servers, are really anxious about that loss in wages. So I think there are a couple things that we need to think about. One is if you are going out to eat, regardless of whether you are getting carry out or eating in, tip extra well. Um, It shouldn't be a responsibility to cover your server's lost wages, but no one else is doing it. So consider it a coronavirus tax right now in the absence of a social safety net. Um, The other thing I think we all need to consider, which is you know, not super optimistic, but if you don't offer your employees paid sick leave, you are offering them a financial incentive to come to work while they are sick and while they have the possibility to spread that disease to other people. So I think more than ever, we need to be talking about ways that we can organize and convince the service industry to step up and do better in that area. Carlton, communication and messaging have become incredibly important for restaurants as far as keeping customers informed rather than fearfully avoidant. Can you talk to me about what you're seeing with that, especially in your role as someone administrating a local food group on Facebook? Sure. Um, I think um, restaurateurs are very wise right now to leverage social media. It's something everyone uses, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Twitter. So they're leveraging it to kind of put out a message of uh, what they're doing for safety measures. They're putting out um, their hours. Um, Yes, we're still open. We have a special, uh, even though March Madness isn't going on, we still want you to come in and here's a special, um, you know, that we're offering. So they're using that um, as a means of um, letting the public know what they're doing and how they're still wanting to provide service to their customers. I've been curious in the wake of fears about access to fresh food in particular, about CSAs where you sign up to get food from a local grower. That seems pretty smart right now. And I'm wondering if local growers are anticipating higher demand, if if people who do CSAs are like, TikTok, April's just around the corner. (laughs) I will say I am a member of a CSA that I would plug called Bread and Roses, which is um, an urban farm. And they do delivery, which right now is kind of the perfect time for that. So they're starting in April and they will deliver, you know, once a week this package to your home. So for those of you who are self-quarantining, that's Mm -hmm. a great way to make sure that you don't have to run to the grocery store and steal, you know, vegetables off the shelf. Well, and I think it's another way that you can support your local farmers, because if traffic dies off in in restaurants, then orders will die off as well from chefs trying to call and get mm-hmm. produce and meat and protein and other things from their local farmers. So join a CSA if you haven't already. Thank you all so much for these insights. Liz Cook, Carlton Logan, Danielle Lehman, we really appreciate your work. Thank you. You're Thanks, welcome. Gina. 
And Jenny Vergara will be sticking around through the break to provide tips for the home cook. If you're anticipating having to cook with less fresh produce and meat, more reliance on your pantry stock, canned goods, stuff like that, she is ready for the challenge. Call 816-235-2888 with the item you have that you don't know how to use. 816-235-2888. Hello again, Jenny. Hi, how are you? I'm all right. I'm Gina Kaufman. This is KCUR's Central Standard, and Jenny Vergara is here from Feast Magazine. She also runs a test kitchen where she invites Kansas City chefs to experiment, and then a handful of lucky people get to sit in on that challenge. Well, now we're presenting a challenge to her to make tasty meals with the non-perishables in all of our pantries. And Jenny, this is something you were just discussing with your boyfriend, were you not? Yeah. So this is kind of a challenge that I give myself probably about once a year. As someone who loves food and does a lot of cooking at home, we all have seen pantries that just tend to overflow after a while. You just keep going out to the grocery store and buying new things and stocking them in front of the old. And pretty soon you have things in the back of your pantry that you're like, what is this? Where'd this old can of lima beans come from and how am I going to use it to get rid of it? Or so like just... Not quite enough, right? Couscous, right? Right, just (laughs) enough that's you know it's kind of back. So this is kind of a couple of different things. It 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 gets your creativity flowing. That's the first part of the exercise. The second part is actually being mindful about food waste and actually using what you've actually purchased in your pantry. So um, with coronavirus and possible people um, staying in more and possibly cooking more, um, you know, I think it's important we talk about kind of what can be done just simply from your pantry and your freezer. Okay, so you've broken your the pantry down into some categories. What are what are some top categories of pantry goods and and let's go through and start sharing those tips. Absolutely. So the first, I just want to kind of lay out the framework for it, and that would be this. Um, you have to think about pantry and freezer cooking in kind of bulk. So if you're feeding a family, you know, get a big pot, make a big bunch of soup or um, pasta sauce or whatever it is you're making, and then plan to freeze it. Freeze it in containers in the size that you would normally be eating it during a meal, so you're not reheating a whole container if you only need half a container. So um, I think now is the time to really utilize your freezer. Most fresh bread bought at the grocery store, its life can be extended if you stick it in the freezer. It, it comes back to temp and reheats beautifully. So there are things we can do right now to kind of you know plan to have meals later. Um, if you make chili one night, you can bring it out another night and use it as a dip for something else to make chili con carne or something else. So you have to really get, use your mind and get creative. In terms of categories, I want to look at kind of some seller staples that are fresh items that you probably should go ahead and have on hand, which is garlic and onion. That's kind of the basis of most dishes that you'd be making. Those things will keep for four to six months in a root cellar or in a dark part of your cabinet, kind of underneath, away from the sunlight. So um, you shouldn't be afraid to use that. And then root vegetables, potatoes, carrots, beets, turnips. um, Those are all things you can do. Frozen fruits that you can buy at um, Costco, some of the big box stores, grocery stores, those can also stay beautifully. They can reheat and come to room temp and be put over yogurt yogurt or um, cottage cheese. They can be used for breakfast. I even use them to make a little like individual bramble or, or kind of just little, little... What is a bramble? Like a, a streusel topping or a pastry <laughs> topping. It's basically a fruit pie. So you just put a little frozen fruit in a, in a pan and you can top it with a little bit of butter and um, brown sugar and a little bit of oats and it makes kind of a crumble topping, so to speak. So it's, it's like a type of crumble. Okay, tell me what to do with canned vegetables that like might make me not just feel like I just emptied out a can of 
green beans. Well, let's start with frozen vegetables first, because I have to say frozen vegetables actually are almost the same in nutritional value as fresh. Yeah. And they're unlike canned, which is tends to be kind of mushy. Yeah, they're not mushy. Frozen vegetables, superior. That's right. So if you're going to kind of think about vegetables, maybe think about frozen vegetables, um, because they they too can be thrown in any number of stir fry soups, dishes, etc. In terms of canned vegetables, I think you have to think of canned vegetables as something you're going to puree. I mean, they're already kind of mush anyway. Um, the, the important thing is is to drain off any of that liquid. You don't want to use that liquid if you're going to use it in a soup or a stew or any of that. Um, rinse them well because a lot of them have extra salts and things you don't necessarily need. Um, but they can be used to make uh, any numbers. So I have – I'm not a fan of lima beans. If there is one thing I have to point to, lima beans is not my favorite. I'll remember that. I have a can in the back that I used last night to make lima bean hummus. And I just simply took the can, drained it off, rinsed it really well, and basically put it into a food processor with a little bit of lemon juice, lemon zest – just a titch of garlic, um, some herbs and spices, and just pureed it up. And so now I have something to eat with fresh vegetables or crackers or whatever you may have on hand. Um, if you have spinach or artichoke hearts, that can be a beautiful artichoke spinach dip. I mean, tomatoes are something you should always have on hand to make soups with, pasta sauces, any number of things that, can, again, can be frozen and used later. Let's talk to Amanda and Platwood. It sounds like Amanda has more of a news-you-can-use kind of tip than a challenge for Jenny, but we'll see if we can draw a challenge out of Amanda. Amanda, good morning. Good morning. Okay, so first so of all, I'm, I'm, yeah, the news-you-can-use. Yes. So um, I'm, I'm a terrible cook. Unlike your first guest earlier, I'm like the polar opposite. I hate cooking. I'm not very good at it. I never know what to do with everything I have, and I've got this full pantry of everything. Um, But uh, I I came across a website a while back called supercook.com, and you input all of the ingredients you have in your kitchen, in your pantry, in your fridge, your freezer, spices, and then it pulls up all these recipes that you can make using what you have, and it's searchable by main ingredients. And that, um, that, that's, that's my lifeline. <laughs> Amanda, can you give us an example of an item that is in your pantry right now? Just It doesn't even matter what it is. Just tell us. We're going to let Jenny be your supercook.com. <laughs> Ooh, well, well. This is, this is personalized treatment here. Um, let's see. What is in my pantry right now? I don't really have much other. <laughs> what? Uh, well, I've got shredded chicken. Shredded chicken. Okay. Shredded chicken, Jenny. So like canned that. chicken, like canned tuna fish? No, I, I'm I'm one of those people who gets like the $5 rotisserie chicken at Hy-Vee and eats part of it in the parking lot because you're so hungry and you don't want to go home and save kids yet. Yes. So. so do you have the rest of the bird with you or you have discarded the bird? So you've pulled, Jenny's asking if you've pulled the shredded chicken off of the bones or if you have an intact bird. Something strange is happening with our phone connection. Let's just assume, give both scenarios. All right, fantastic. So if she has shredded chicken, obviously that can go into making tacos. I mean, you can use shredded chicken in anything. Sprinkle it over a salad. You can make a chop it up chicken salad sandwich with a little bit of celery, apple, put it on a sandwich. If she's got the whole bird, she can actually make a whole other dish by um, taking the carcass of the bird, pull all the chicken off, boil it in some hot water, um, season it with, you know, maybe a little onion, garlic, whatever you've got around. And then that broth can be used to make chicken chicken noodle soup, which is one of my favorites. So take whatever pasta you have, break it up into pieces, throw it in the pot, maybe some carrot coins, maybe just a little bit of dill. I tend to be a girl who likes a little dill in my um, chicken noodle soup, but whatever herb kind of turns you on. And then basically just boil it and that you have 
beautiful chicken noodle soup that will freeze beautifully, taste delicious, and it's like two meals in one. So you've had your rotisserie chicken, and now you get this beautiful chicken soup out of it as well. And then you put that when you put that in the freezer in your serving sizes, mm-hmm. the amount that you would intend to thaw in one sitting. Correct. That then becomes the non-perishable. Right. At, in the state that it's in, mm-hmm. rotisserie chicken, it is not a non-perishable that, item. But once you correct. have cooked it and frozen it, it is. Correct. And you can even, if you're not, uh, I tend to do it the same night. So if I buy a rotisserie chicken or if I make a whole chicken, I tend to make the chicken noodle soup that night. So it's easy. It's done. It's one one time that you're cooking. Um, some people, you can also just put the carcass in a Ziploc bag, throw it in your freezer and use it later, obviously. Bring it back out. Same exact thing. Put it in a pot with water. Uh, make your chicken noodle soup and you're ready for it. So that's another tip. Jenny, what's something creative to do with like with that bread that you have frozen? The obvious thing to do with bread is to make sandwiches or make toast. But mm-hmm. is there is there a better idea? Well, I mean, bread can, bread is used almost in kind of every preparation, every meal day part that we use. So if you're thinking about um, breakfast, you should think about French toast. You know, obviously you can use that toast, dip it in a little egg wash, which everybody should have eggs. It's an easy, quick way to get protein. Um, and then you can just obviously griddle it off and have um, French toast, a little bit of maple syrup if you have it, or get some of that frozen fruit out of your freezer and use that. Um, you know, bread, obviously, for sandwiches, of course, anything like that. Um, there's even like a dessert option where you could do bread pudding. If you have a lot of extra bread on hand, you could kind of rip it up and make an easy bread pudding for your family. That's how a lot of the restaurants end up using the what's left over of their bread at the end of the week. So um, it's a nice quick tip. But um, bread's pretty versatile. It also gives you a lot of fiber if you're buying, you know, obviously something that's more whole grain. Yeah. What if people do have like a good stock of bulk grains? Because to me, like Mm -hmm. as I think about what would be financially like a responsible way to stock up and then sort of flexible it is having those like basics in bulk that That's you can exactly do right. stuff with but i am i am not entirely sure like exactly what would i do with like my red lentils and my cornmeal mhm so in terms of staples the thing you have to remember is anything grain so white rice brown rice quinoa uh, frica, farro, barley, any of these things can be used, um, cooked, uh, obviously, and used as a side dish to any anything else you're using, if, if it's vegetable or protein. It can also be used, obviously, in soups. It can be a real thickener to soups if you need to. Um, but the other thing, too, it can even be dessert. I mean, right, we've all heard of rice pudding or some iteration of that as well. Um, the thing about a lot of these grains is that you have to rinse them really well to get the dirt flavor out of them. Some of them, like quinoa, tend to have kind of that aftertaste. But if you rinse it really re- well before you... Um, boil it, you should be in good shape. But all of those things provide, obviously, excellent fiber, some of them pretty high in protein. The other thing that you absolutely should have in your staple, in your pantry staples, is uh, beans. So any kind of beans, whether it's pinto beans, kidney beans, black beans, uh, black-eyed peas even, which is not really a bean, but we'll count it in this case, Um, chickpeas, cannellini beans. All of these can be used in soups and stews. They can be pureed into really nice thick vegetable dips like a hummus. you know, they can use be used in any number. I always have cans of black beans because I always end up doing kind of a, a black bean soup that I'll serve over white rice. A um, little bit of sausage out of my freezer, and that's kind of a meal for me. So, What about canned fish? 
can fish. So I'll say tuna fish. Let's call it tuna fish. Um, Salmon, there are some uses for canned salmon. It's just not as good or superior as I think what you can get, obviously, at the store and put in the freezer. So your cat might like it. Your cat might like it. Um, You can get really good quality tuna fish right now, and that should be something that adds absolutely in your pantry because you can make a beautiful fish dish that you can, uh, like a dip that you can spread on crackers with it. You can also obviously make tuna fish salad. Who doesn't love that? Um, Even tuna casserole, if you want to throw way back to kind of our childhood, a little bit of potato chips crumpled on top. You know, if you're really in a pinch, tuna fish can solve you. But um, again, if you sprinkle it over lettuce, it can be used in a salad. There's any number of ways that you can use tuna fish. Can you define for me high quality tuna fish? Traditionally, it comes from Italy. You'll find it at like World Market, um, maybe even Trader Joe's. You have to kind of look for it. Um, again, this is one of those things where you need to look for sustainably uh, fished or farmed uh, fi- or fished uh, tuna fish. So you want something that's sustainable. You want something that um, really has um, all the nutrients in it. You're, you don't want to buy low quality tuna fish. Buy as high quality tuna fish as you can possibly get. Can I give you a challenge from uh, the food that I have kind of stocked up on? Because I made a very weird choice the other day. I sure. think that like stress does that to me. I occasionally am like, I just, I feel like I should have a couple more staples. And then I look at what's in my cart and I'm like, who just possessed my brain and made that decision? Yes. And the decision that I'm talking about in this case is pickled herring. Jenny, I bought a pickled giant herring. jar of pickled herring and I don't know why I did that. Oh my gosh. What do I, what so do the, I, the, this, you put it on a cracker, but like, like, let's say that this becomes like my prized ingredient in my kitchen mm-hmm. under duress. Mm-hmm. So the thing about pickled herring is it's very specific. And I would tell you that if you work it out with your therapist, it probably goes back to something in your childhood. Yeah, But having, having said that, um, you know, pickled herring is one of those things where you can make a fish salad out of it that would be delicious. Again, a, more of a dip situation. You could also kind of put it, I find myself in these kind of hard times, especially, you know, working late, going downstairs and just just putting together kind of a charcuterie board, you know, with whatever meats or cheeses or fish or fruit or dried fruit or nuts that I have on hand. And that and a bottle of wine have gotten me through many, many a tough night. So I might just stick that right on my charcuterie board and have it with some pick, little pickled veggies. You Make know. it look nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, Ashley and Lawrence has a, has a challenge for you and we have very little time. So Ashley, real quick, what'd you buy? I have some bags of giant dried chilies. I have guajillo chilies. And Casabel chilies that dried. I have no idea what to do with. Yeah, okay, dried. Jenny, what do we do? Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, dried chilies are one of those things where you can rehydrate them in hot water, obviously, and they will come instantly back to life. And then once you have done that, I would simply puree it into a lovely enchilada sauce or even a salsa, add some fresh canned tomatoes out of your pantry, and then you literally have taco toppings, enchilada toppings. I would take it straight straight to Mexico. Jenny Vergara, thanks so much. My pleasure. Jenny is a contributing editor at Feast Magazine. She's a regular food critic on our show, and she dominates the pantry. Share your tips for creativity with food that's in your pantry on Twitter. We're at KCURCST, and please document these experiments because, you know, pictures or it didn't happen. At KCURCST. That's a wrap for the week, but our content is online, kcur.org slash central standard and a little announcement given the circumstances surrounding coronavirus 
and KCUR's role in keeping the community as updated as possible with credible, consistent information. We're going to make a program adjustment over the next week's Central Standard and up-to-date our combining resources to bring you daily coverage on the coronavirus and its impact. Starting Monday morning at 9, we'll bring you up-to-date special coverage, coronavirus in Kansas City. KCUR is dedicated to covering Kansas City and seeing you through this time. This show is produced by Melody Rowell, Mackenzie Martin, Michelle Tyreen Johnson, and Noah Taborda. I'm Gina Kaufman. Be cool, everyone.